Hello, everyone. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'll be speaking with Howard Wax. Howard Wax's entrepreneurial career spans over 50 years. Until his company's recent sale to a publicly traded medical company, Howard and his partner grew Hugh Freedy, their 110-year-old Chicago dental instrument manufacturing company, into one of the most highly regarded and recognized worldwide brands in dentistry. Today, Howard is president and principal advisor of the Wax Group, a business consultancy where his network of seasoned, semi-retired business pros are giving back by sharing their wealth of experience and savvy. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we start, Howard, by having you tell us the story of how you came to run Hugh Freedy and what the business was like when you took over? Well, it's interesting, certainly, when you say run Hugh Freedy. I think most entrepreneurs will tell you that they generally don't run the business, certainly in its infancy. It's the business that runs them. So (laughs) I actually had, after college, gone to the West Coast and taken up a job with a family-owned business that was in the aircraft parts business, uh, manufacturing fasteners for aircraft. And the company there got acquired. That was at a time back in the late 60s when conglomerates were buying up everything they could. And a large company, Omark Industries, in fact, a chainsaw company, bought our company. And while I had had the opportunity to move to Portland, where their headquarters were, I opted out of that and decided that I wanted to do my own thing. And I tried buying a business in LA, where I was living at the time, and I was not successful. Learned a lot of lessons about financing and what's involved. And my father, who was back in Chicago, said that he was willing to loan me some money, but not if I was out on the West Coast, only if I would return to Chicago. And that's what brought me back to Chicago, the prospect of finding a business for myself that I would enter. And I spent some time endeavoring to do that and try not to bore you with all of the details. But as it turned out, the opportunity that I thought I was going to take advantage of failed. And I, at the request of my brother-in-law at the time, joined him for at least one year to see if it would work for us. And we had almost just about 50 years of one-year deals working it together. And that's what brought me to Hugh Freedy in Chicago. At the time, I was the 18th employee, and that's what brought me to lead the business, I guess you'd say. Sure. Now, when you joined Hugh Freedy, what was your role there? Was it CEO? Well, (laughs) just the two of us, and we like so many other entrepreneurs, you have to wear a gazillion hats. We didn't, I guess the answer is from that day until the day that I retired, I never put a title on my card, except when I was doing business in Japan. Can't do business in Asia without having a title (laughs) on a card. But otherwise, I was whatever I needed to be. And the way we had kind of divided things up, and the reason that my brother-in-law had asked me to join him was because I had experience in sales and marketing, and 
he liked doing the manufacturing stuff. And together, we kind of jointly did the administrative financial types of things. That makes sense. Now, can you paint a picture of what Hugh Freedy looked like from the outside at that point? What did it sell? What did it look like to the market? Well, the man that started our company, Hugo Friedman, was an instrument maker that had emigrated to the United States from Vienna, Austria. And I never had the pleasure of meeting him. He had passed on almost within six months of the time that Dick, and with his dad's help, bought Euphredi. And so he had lacked the benefit of having Hugo's expertise. We had a basically a very small line of periodontal instruments that Hugo had renumbered. It was very different. It was kind of crazy. His idea was that if you can get a dentist to buy your product, the only way he can get that product is by coming back to you. So everybody else in the industry had a different numbering system for similar kinds of products. And our numbering system and the nomenclature of our products was very different. So it was viewed as a very highly specialized instrument that designed predominantly for periodontists. Uh, Those are the folks that clean your teeth and treat the gums. So it was a very limited product line. It was very specialized in terms of its numbering system. We had but a very few folks who were skilled at making the instruments. So when we were successful in getting a decent order of some quantity, it could be literally several months before we could satisfy the order. So we were, as much as folks regarded us as being a high-quality producer of product and handmade and beautiful and strong and really good high-quality instruments, the fact was that people didn't buy us because it wasn't the regular nomenclature. It was not carried by our distributors at all because there were other companies that were doing significantly more volume than we. Their instruments and products were being ordered by dentists routinely, and so they stocked those products and not ours. And so we had an awful lot of stuff going against us, delivery times and part numbers and limited line of product that only at that time, there were, I think, only 1,800 periodontists in the whole country. Wow. I mean, it was a very, very small and, and specific market. As a matter of fact, I remember when I joined the company and was starting to learn the marketplace, it was fascinating to me that the mentality of most of the people that went to dentists only went to dentists because they were worried about cavities. But in reality, I learned, and this was the story that was being promulgated appropriately by periodontists, even though it was considered somewhat heresy at the time, that most tooth loss in the world is caused by periodontal disease that allows the membrane that holds the tooth in place to deteriorate and eventually the tooth just falls out. In fact, at that time, I remember the statistic, 85% of the tooth loss in the world is caused by periodontal disease and not decay. That's very interesting. Our instruments were designed by periodontists for periodontists to help 
clean the tooth so that the disease or the bacteria, the periodontal disease, would be cleaned out of the periodontal pocket and would then keep the tooth healthy. Does that stat still apply today? I yeah. imagine it does. Yes, it does. And when, you know, with that information, I mean, you know, okay, so what do we do? Or is it this highly specialized? I, I remember probably after about a year, I decided that I didn't know what we were going to do to ramp up sales. We were doing about, at that time, we were doing about $300,000 a year in business. And we really didn't have, of course, you know, we suffered like most companies. You know, you would think that a company that at that point was over 50 years old, you would think that we would be relatively stable. But in fact, it was just really a very small company with a very limited amount of money available. And we were only able to borrow a certain amount of money. And we had a very tight budget like everybody else. And so it was, you can come in and you can have lots of grandiose ideas about what to do. But how do you decide where to place your bet? I mean, that was really a challenge. And, and this is a challenge, I think, a lot of, you know, in my consulting days, these, these days, I find that it's the same problem for everybody. You only have a certain amount of money. Where do you place your bet? So 18 employees and $300,000 a year in sales is, that's not many dollars to go around. No, it's not. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. So is it fair to say that the business was operating at a loss? No, we were scraping by. Hmm. So let's go back to what you were talking about, where to make the tough choices about where to make investments. What were your criteria at the time for what made sense to spend money on? Well, the first thing I did, as I say, the, the major thing that I did, because I, first of all, I had to learn the business. So I went to some conventions and I talked to some periodontists and dentists. And, and I learned that the company had a pretty decent reputation, those few people that actually knew the company, mm -hmm. and basically never used the product. So they really didn't know much other than, yeah, I think I heard the name. I heard it's a good product or you just make scalers, right? We were really not very well known. And how do you become known really is, you know, in those days, there wasn't social media. You had to have a catalog. Our catalog, the last printing of our catalog by Hugo was in 1948. So, I mean, it was old. And it was done, it was printed woodblocks, I remember. I couldn't, I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> so I decided to take a trip and I spent the better part of a year driving from the East Coast to the West Coast, calling on dental distributors. And at that time, there were plus or minus somewhere between 600 and 800 independent small dental distributors in various cities across the country that serve the needs of dentists. And I called on some that had made purchases from us, some that had never made purchases from us. And my goal was to learn about their business and learn from them what they thought perhaps I should do in order to change things up for Hugh Freedy. Sure. Again, the important part here, I think, you know, if there's a 
a lesson learned, hearing what the customer or potential customer has to say, even though it's not necessarily what you want to hear, is really valuable stuff. Sure. And it helped me formulate a strategy that luckily, in some part, turned to be successful. For context, what year are we talking about here? 1971, 72. So in 1971 and 72, you're running around to all of these distributors, learning, selling, marketing, building awareness. I wasn't selling per se because I had, I mean, I I was in some sense, but I didn't, I mean, it wasn't as though I was asking for orders. Mm -hmm. I was just asking for help. What do I need to do to get you, Mr. Distributor, to be interested enough in stocking our product so that it would be available for your customers? And what did you find was the answer to that question? Well, you need to get your customer, the end user, if you will, the dentists, to ask us and demand the product. We're willing you can provide us some help with tools to deliver and information to deliver to the customers and provide us encouragement and our sales team encouragement to talk about and training to talk about your product. Because honestly, Howard, we know very little about scalers. And I don't know that our salespeople even talk about selling instruments. And honestly, very few of them call on these 1,800 periodontists. They are just calling on the general dentist's offices. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So what plan did that translate into? Well, one of the things that, well, not one, I mean, there are many, you know, you try and siphon, you know, the many things that get told to you and try and pick some things that seem to be meaningful. and. And along the way, I think I discovered the value of what is being taught in the school and to the extent that you could get your product being used by students, dental students and perhaps dental hygiene students, you might have a shot at then they're asking for your product when they got out of school because every dentist at that time, these were independent solo practitioners dental hygienists who would graduate their dental hygiene program in two years' time and go to work for a dentist, typically carried their instruments, their, their, so to say, their tools with them and wanted to continue to use those products that they were accustomed to using in dental school. So right or wrong, I decided that we needed to have a strategy of selling to dental programs, both dentist schools and dental hygiene programs. I'm curious, was this an easy conclusion to arrive at at the time? Or did this require some serious introspection about an examination of your customer's, shall I call it, journey? Well, I I can't say that it was easy, but it was the one that was going to be the least costly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was was something that I thought that I could do by myself and didn't, I mean, if, if we were to really try and 
generate sales among periodontists that are already out of school and dental hygienists that are working for some of the dentists doing dental hygiene work, we'd have to have a fleet of salespeople. And in order to have salespeople, it's going to cost you money that you don't have. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I could do an aggressive, call it a sales campaign over the telephone and solicit business from dental hygiene programs. And I spent literally a year on the phone. At the time, there were 270 dental hygiene programs across the United States. And there were 60-ish dental schools that had periodontal programs. And I got on the phone and I would speak to people at these programs and continue to offer samples and would send samples and would follow up with those samples. And I was lucky enough to hook up with a couple of dental hygiene supervisors and clinical instructors and what have you who had some credibility and following, if you will, in the marketplace. And I was able to befriend some periodontists as well who were affiliated with the universities who were nicely able to communicate about our instruments when they spoke at school and lectured at school or when they spoke at a convention and when they were lecturing other dentists. And we started making some inroads in the schools. And we didn't need the distributors to do that. We were able to sell the schools directly, which helped tremendously in getting involved because the distributors in many respects were not motivated to sell any of these institutions. They didn't have the patience. Their salespeople weren't getting commissions on it. And for a whole host of other reasons, it made it much easier for us to deal directly. And we were successful, fortunately, because we had a good product and we were able to make deals with the schools that were attractive to them to bring our products in. And we started providing kits of instruments for these students. That's interesting. So was this new territory for periodontal and dental hygiene schools? Were other instrument providers not providing the same level of attention and, I suppose you could say, product knowledge, product access? The very large company in the industry was a company that had many dental products. They were It was a, a company called S.S. White, and they sold equipment. They sold lots of different, many of the dental chemicals and medicaments and cotton rolls, and they sold everything along with instruments. So from the consumer's point of view, we were the specialists. And that was very attractive to the end user. Interesting. Now, one of the things that you've introduced here is that your audience went beyond periodontists. And it includes dental hygienists. Was that something I missed here in terms of the applicability of... Well, a dental hygienist uses these scalers right. clean teeth. And so it's the same group of products used by the periodontist, except that the periodontist also has uh, associated with his armamentarium 
some surgical products, some surgical instruments. But mm -hmm. otherwise, I mean, at the time, Hugh Freedy was really highly regarded for scalers. That was kind of the core group of products. And, and there had been a product that had been developed by a Dr. Clayton Gracie, who had been the dean of the dental school at the University of Michigan, who worked with Hugo Friedman in developing this group of products because at the time, none of the other companies would pay much attention because they didn't see much of a market for these products. Mm -hmm. And Hugo paid attention to Dr. Gracie, and we ended up with selling this group of products that was unique and different and then subsequently very highly regarded and in demand. So we had a collection, if you will, of 14 instruments, seven instruments that were double-ended that were very unique in the industry, and we had something to talk about. So uniqueness, niche, and quality sound like the broader factors that allowed Hugh Freedy to have an attractive product. And with your efforts with schools and instructors, how far were you able to take revenue with Hugh Freedy? Within a couple of years, I think that we were we had exceeded the goal was to get us over a million dollars. That was what we needed to do to at least have some money to work with. And we did that relatively quickly. So as you reached that objective and you started to think about what was next, what did you view as the success factors for the business and what needed to happen then? Well, there were some interesting phenomenon that occurred that, you know, the similar kinds of challenges that most businesses have, I think, and ours were unique, or at least they were unique to us, is that as we started selling schools, it becomes kind of, a, for us at least in the initial years, it became very much of a, a seasonal business, I guess you'd have to say, because when you're involved in selling to schools and you're providing instruments to students, in our case at least, we were providing these products. Uh, we had to produce them so that they would all come and be delivered sometime over the summer so that they could be delivered to students when they entered school sometime in September. And then anybody that has ever dealt with institutions knows that you don't get paid very quickly on top of that. So we found ourselves investing in labor and investing in materials and investing in inventories and a product that we had delivered that we hadn't been paid for. And you can well understand that their cost of inventory and receivables were very difficult for a, a young company to manage. And we had a bank with whom we worked, but after a couple of years, we really learned that our small local bank was getting skittish and helping manage our finances. And one of the big hurdles that we were successful in overcoming was getting one of the big banks to back us up. That made a huge difference for our ability to fund a lot of the things that we wanted to do and believed would pay off for us. So with new tailwinds on the revenue side, new access to capital, 
what new opportunities did you turn your focus to? Well, certainly focus is the right word because this is, in my experience, not only for myself, but in working with others who are product-oriented in particular, there's a tendency for entrepreneurs to want to do everything. And I guess the important message and things that I learned along the way and found ultimately to be successful along the way is kind of just pick something and focus on it and attend to that. Be uh, willing to give it up if it's not working and not be so committed that you can't also be flexible. But at that point, uh, a long list of things that we wanted to do, but had to start to make some educated choices. And, you know, do you expand your product line? Do you expand your marketing? How do you brand your product? And how are you going to go about doing that? Do you do seminars for thought leaders? Do you, you know, what are the tools? And, and you can't do it all. What are the things that you want to place your bet on that's going to help you become more successful? And not the least of which is hiring more people. And that's always a challenge when you, particularly as you start to find out that some of the people that you have, as much as you like them, are not the ones that are going to carry you to where you need to go. Right. So one of the common questions is what level of due diligence makes sense for a company my size, right? And so as Hugh Freedy was getting more complicated and there are all these areas of the business that need attention, how did you organize your thinking on what were the best places to invest? How did you come to some of those decisions? I think I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to say there's an awful lot of luck in entrepreneurship and I think, you know, along with luck comes a lot of prayer. <laughs> sure. I think, you know, I, I guess I have to say, you know, as I was thinking about how I would respond to some of the questions that you might ask, I think that we got very fortunate in that we created a culture in our company that allowed for open communication, was very encouraging for everybody in the company, no matter what job they had to offer their opinions and thoughts and suggestions and ideas. And so when we had choices to make, it was not uncommon for us at the end of a day on a Friday to tell everybody, listen, we're going to open up a couple of bottles of wine and have some beer in the office, and you're more than welcome to join in. And we had almost in complete attendance. And we would sit around for a couple of hours after work. And this was people, I mean, this is everybody. I, I mean, this wasn't just exclusive to, quote unquote, the white collar group. This was people who were working in the factory and people who were working, filling orders and, and what have you. And we would pose a particular situation that we were having. And we were curious to hear what everybody thought. And it was remarkable how many great ideas came as a result of that. And it's cute. One of the ideas that I remember came early on, and it came from somebody who was one of our instrument makers, 
said, well, you know, all of us have dentists, don't we? And in fact, we found that uh, all of our employees, there was quite a number of different dentists in the local area. And they said, well, why don't we make a party for all of the people that we go to that are dentists and ask them their ideas? And we created like our own focus group from the dentists that served our employees. (laughs) Interesting. And we got some really valuable information and people that genuinely were looking to help us. Was all of this happenstance? I mean, what what you're describing is a very actually thoughtful way. I have to tell you, yes, in, in many respects, happenstance, because, you know, ideas from employees were the the seedlings from which a lot of ideas grew. I remember a friend of mine from California, he had uh, stepped in on his father's business making automobile floor mats and turned that business into, at that time, I mean, God knows what it is today, but uh, I remember he grew that business from a few million dollars into a $210 million business at that time. And I said, Larry, what did, you know, what's your secret? I want want a piece of that. (laughs) He said, it's really simple. (laughs) He said, make sure that you give your employees a big party every year for Christmas. And the second thing that you have to do is have a corporate t-shirt that everybody, so everybody feels a part of the team, you know, with your logo on it. And that was one of the very first things I did for everybody is, of course, from that came a lot of really interesting marketing concepts where we did a partnering with SNH, they called it SNH Green Stamps. People of my vintage will tell you that they had developed a way, this was kind of the entry into affinity programs, membership programs. Okay. People at home would save their booklets of green stamps that could then be redeemed for a catalog of different gifts. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, borrowing a page from what other companies had been doing, we got in contact with these folks, uh, Spurry and Hutchinson. They were in Chicago at the time. And we wanted to use their catalog, but we created an affinity program, a promotional program for not only our employees, but for the salespeople that worked for our distributors. And we called it Immunity Dollars. Instead of S&H stamps, they could save these certificates that were silver, and they were looking like a dollar. And for making sales of our products or achieving certain goals in our factory, depending upon the situation, And we had lots of things that could be then purchased with those immunity dollars. And again, it was utilizing our logo items in particular that we would feature so that I remember one of the big programs that we did was beach towels with our our logo on it. And we gave our dental supply salespeople the chance to make sales, earn immunity dollars and have dental hygienists get, for a certain amount of purchases, they would get a Hugh Freedy beach towel. Well, it really it was became a very popular thing, and 
over the summers all across the country, hygienists were using Hugh Freedy beach towels that had our big branded name on the whole length of the, the towel. And it turned out to be a great sales tool. So this open culture, Hugh Freedy grew larger and larger over the years. Was there a point at which just this open culture, for lack of better words, didn't work as well anymore? No, it actually, I mean, I think perhaps it could work. It works better. It's different. I mean, it takes a lot of work to manage it. Mm -hmm. But we were very committed. Keep in mind, Kinei, that the products that we were making and have are being made are all handmade. So we forever have been reliant on labor to make our products. We've been reliant on labor to sell our products. You know, if you're reliant on labor, you want to make sure that your labor really likes working for you. Nothing is worse than training somebody in a skill that it takes several years to, so to say, be an apprentice and then really become good at, and you don't want them to leave. You have to create an environment where people really feel a part of a company. And and I think that our culture, I mean, it, it was a lot easier in starting out. But as we got bigger, there were lots of things that we did that I think were great tools. Uh, again, suggestions that came from the rank and file. So, for example, among our employees... Being in Chicago, there were lots of ethnicities of folks in Chicago. We had, among our employees, there were any number of different languages spoken, and we had any number of employees that didn't speak English. Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Polish, Spanish. Uh, so we had lots of different folks. A, a Czech guy, I remember. So we actually, we started printing a newspaper, which we called the Hugh Freedy Happenings, that would be a monthly newsletter that would capture pictures of our employees and their employees' families, and they would contribute pictures and articles, and we would create this newsletter, which four times a year, we would, for special issues like the Christmas issue and, and such, we would translate into the various different languages. Wow. So we went out of our way to do that. And how did we do that? Well, we got our employees involved in doing that. Uh, we didn't have to do it. We formed a, we called it the Culture Club. And it was made up of a group of our employees that were, so to say, elected like the student council. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. Culture then, uh, So that uh, became a very effective tool and, and one that was very valuable to us, I might add, as a couple of times there was a union that tried to unionize our folks. And our newspaper was a very effective communication tool to speak to our side. And our attorneys at the time said, you were very lucky to have this tool already in place because you are allowed by law to continue to communicate with your employees and, and express your views, at which we, we did very effectively. Right. But that grew. And then we subsequently, as, as our management team grew, 
we had a monthly special newsletter that went to management that was called the Crystal Ball. <laughs> and that was a little newsletter that uh, really told management what was going on and what some of our customers are saying. And it gave some reports on quality. And Sure. I'm writing down some of these names. They're brilliant. <laughs> the Culture Club. The Crystal Ball. They're amazing. Well, the newsletter that we had monthly for all of our employees was called Hugh Freedy Happenings. So the point is, is that we embraced all of our people. We understood the value of having their input, having their participation, including their own feelings about their own work and how they were working and, and what was working for them and what wasn't working for them. And we continue to have what we refer to, and, and I think other companies refer to today as an open door. And it was not uncommon for employees to walk into my partner's office or my office at any time and sit down and know that they would get listened to. Right. You know, this, this is interesting because we're talking about employees right now, but really what we've been talking about for more than a few minutes now is how you and Hugh Freedy just listened across the board. You listen to customers, you listen to employees, so on and so forth. And that is the very heart of... Well, it's interesting that you say this. I, from my point of view, and I think that this was kind of doctrine, if you will, within the company, is you can't build a company without good people who are not talented and experts, but people who are committed to the company. And you can't build a company without committed and loyal customers. Mm -hmm. And so decisions that you make really first have to take into account, my view, what's good for employees and what do they want and what's going to make them feel good about the company. And similarly, you have to find out what your customers want from you and be able to do in some way the things that they are looking for their primary suppliers to do. And product and, and everything else, you know, yes, it's all important for sure, but everything has to take a back seat if you can't get your people right and your customers right. I see that over and over, as well as this challenging employee situation where, you know, essentially they're a high performer, but they're a poor fit for whatever reasons are circumstantial. Howard, help me understand, how do you run a business in a way that is fully conscious of the importance of culture, but then also run the business by the numbers? At least for us, the numbers were the last thing we paid attention to. It was really down on the list. And I, I think from my point of view, and, and I know it's probably not a popular point of view, but while numbers are important, you'll never have the numbers that you want if you don't attend to all of these other things. And so if we had a decision to make that was going to challenge our numbers, but would improve the situation at home with our employees, it was a no-brainer because our employees and our customers always came first 
and the numbers are just going to have to take care of themselves. The numbers are the result, not the method. It's not the goal, and the strategy isn't about getting numbers. Now, for context, how large was it when you guys began exploring a sale? When we sold the company, the company was doing just slightly over $200 million a year. And how many employees did you have at that point? I think we had worldwide, I think, about a 1,000. So we've certainly been talking about some of the interesting situations, but I'm wondering, was there something that stands out to you as the toughest situation you encountered while leading the business? Can you tell us a little bit about what that was and maybe what made it so difficult? Toughest. Wow. (laughs) There's certainly no shortage of headaches in running a business, but is there anything that stands out to you as a, shall I call it a battle scar? The answer is no, that's fine. No, no. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to, I guess, certainly one of the bigger challenges was one that we had little control over. I guess that's probably the nature of business challenges is not having control, is that from those 700, 600, 800 dental distributors, over the years, our industry consolidated. And today, basically, three large conglomerate-ish companies have the commanding share of the dental supply marketplace. And while those are the three companies today, over the years, those larger consolidators, if you will, have changed. Over the years, there was one that was called Cadesco, and then there was one that was called Healthco, and then there was one that was done by Litton Industries. But at the end of the day, today, there are three prominent companies, and they are not those companies that did all of the various acquisitions along the way, but they then became acquired themselves. And so today, basically, 80% of the industry is controlled by three distributors. And when distributors, and that becomes your total avenue for the most part of your sales, are in the driver's seat, that has some very unique and, and interesting challenges that we had to learn how to adapt to. So I would say that was certainly one of them. Another of them is probably a challenge that was very unique to us in that being a company whose products are, for the most part, all handmade, we found that as the labor market started shifting and changing, it was really almost impossible for us to get folks in our Chicagoland area for example, to want to become handcraftsmen of instruments. So we started suffering some really significant labor shortages and having some very challenging employee training issues. And we discovered that even at any kind of price, I mean, we're talking about paying well over $10 an hour to start somebody out in a market where the hourly rates were $5 an hour, and today where you're trying to pay people $15, $20 an hour and still can't hire people, we elected to set up a facility in China. 
And I think that probably is one of the key decisions that really perhaps saved the company, if you will, from becoming obsolete. We tried robotics to the extent that we could do robotics. We did some, but so much of what we were doing was unique and different and required hand craftsmanship. And so much of our product was built on that and made the quality of our product that we really needed to develop a market where we could hire people who were willing to work and do this kind of work. We couldn't hire people at any rate to do the kind of work that we needed them to do in Chicago. So we are still manufacturing a product in Chicago. We're also manufacturing product in Germany, but also manufacturing product in Shanghai, China. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about culture and open communication, and it's being instrumental in Hugh Friedi's success. How did this globalization of your workforce change the culture, or did it? If anything, it enhanced it. We were lucky because, here again, we involved our employees. We had, particularly in the training of people, I mean, keep in mind now, we opened up a factory in China and didn't have a single person that knew how to make our product there, other than sending people over from the U.S. to train people. Mm -hmm. And so we had sign-up sheets. We had we were having rank-and-file hourly people getting visas to go to Shanghai and stay there and become trainers. Again, keeping in mind that the challenges involved, that we were sending people who did not speak Chinese to work with people who didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Actually, one of the fellas who led the manufacturing training program after a number of years, and, and they since retired, but he came back speaking Mandarin like he was one of the local folks. And he went over there. He only spoke German and English. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. But it, it could not have been done without having the culture of people that were willing to do what it needed to be done and whose families were willing to allow them to go mm -hmm. and participate. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of nationalistic rhetoric at this point in the world. That truly didn't emerge as a challenge for Hugh Freedy. I understand it was a global company, uh, yeah. a multicultural one from right. the start. I so remember uh, one occasion, my partner and I were at a Texas dental show, and we listened to some folks. We remember saying to each other, they were involved in a sales situation, and, and we were embarrassed by, so to say, the ugly American style. The, you know, we tend to think of the U.S. way of doing business, which tends to be very aggressive. Of course, we don't know from aggressive until you try and do business in in Israel, that's probably off the charts. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we did before we went to each country that we were expanding to was to try and get a, our arms around what was the culture of the country, the business culture of the country. How do people do things? And in China, I remember learning a very valuable word as part of my training, if you will. 
The word is called guanxi. And there is no translation in English for guanxi. But the best way to describe it is if you scratch my back, I scratch your back. Perhaps one of the things that's closest to it in our networking, if you will, is even like our friend Maury, who says, you know, if you introduce people, don't always expect to get something back, but pay it forward. Always try and do the right thing, and good things will come back to you. Mm -hmm. In China, there are too many companies that the U.S. companies and foreign companies that come in, and they tend to want to do things in the way that things are done in their home country. We immediately said, we don't want to do things that the way they're done in our home. We want to do things in a fashion that are appropriate for that culture that we're relocating, so in China. But we'd like to introduce things that can make things better for them. And so the government was very supportive of things that we were doing. So, for example, whereas many of the Chinese companies were not paying very much attention to pollution, in our particular case, we brought in equipment that cleaned all of the air that we used to not push all of the particulates from grinding that we were doing into the air. And all of the solutions that we did to clean our metal parts were all filtered so that we were not polluting the water system and the sewer system. And so we tried to do our part, which was very much of value in our community in China. So we were a valued member of that community. And the man who was in charge of our factory was somebody that we hired while we were there and who's a Chinese national, but had been educated here in the U.S. Actually, he had gone to graduate school at my alma mater and my nephew's alma mater, and we hired him to be our guy. He had never had a, a job prior to joining our company, but he had the education, and he learned with us along the way, but he had the local culture. He's a Chinese national. And he's still with us to this day. This is interesting because, you know, if you sat down and you did a cost-benefit analysis for something like doing the right thing environmentally, you might find that it's tough to show that it would deliver financial value. But you, you, you don't do those things. That's it because, I mean, you know. Well, that was going to be my question. Did the cost-benefit ever cross your mind? No, you can't do that because you know the answer to that. You, you know that whatever investments you're making up front are going to be huge as compared to what you don't have to do and can get away with doing and still be successful. So you have to have a bigger view of things, I guess, is the answer. You have to say, listen, what's, what's important to our employees? Is it clean air or having, you know, are you providing all of the right safety measures? Are you doing everything that is in their best interest. It's a philosophical divide, it seems like, right? So if you look at some of today's large tech manufacturers and the things they are or are not doing for their employees in environments, manufacturing environments where there are materials exposures, some take 
the viewpoint you're expressing and others are more bottom line oriented? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think the successful companies today, it's interesting because some of the things that we have done forever are things that some of the more successful companies are doing today. I had occasion to attend a program that was sponsored by Google here in Chicago and went to the Google building. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of doing so. I was in awe. And the lavish lunches and after work treats that they provide and all throughout the day, snacking and everything else is unbelievable. And the work environment that they have is not just cubicles. It's almost, in many cases, like areas where you can go with a laptop and sit in like a living room. And, you know, we were doing some of those kinds of things from the beginning. We were, right. we were provided, you know, for example, in China, as an example, we provide a bus service for all of our employees and provide lunches. In Chicago, we have kind of ongoing all day long snacks. There is no, I, I remember this was such a crazy thing that so many companies got hung up with having break times. And we had more consultants come in and say, well, you know, you should really have a break time. You know, you have a buzzer and then people take a break and then they come back after 10 minutes. And I said, well, why would you do that? Well, you have to, you're required by law to have people. And, and I said, listen, we tell our employees that they can take a break whenever they want to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. And that can be twice or three times in the morning or five times in the morning when they want a cup of coffee and do whatever they want to do. And we never had a designated break time. Now, did Hugh Freedy ever go through periods where the numbers didn't look so good? And some of these programs were put on the chopping block, so to speak. No. No, we went through lots of times where things didn't look so good. I remember, oh, what was it, in the late 70s, uh, we suffered a recession. Mm -hmm. That was the first time in the history of the company we had to let some people go. We kept on producing instruments where we didn't have any more room to produce it. So we didn't know where to put it all because we kept on making product that we just were making on speculation. But finally, at the end of the day, we felt we needed to let some folks go. It was a very, very hard decision, and it was tough to do. But no, the things that we did that were related to culture, if anything, became more important. The communications that we had, I mean, nothing caught anybody by surprise. That was kind of a, something that we instilled. We are not going to, you are not going to, be called into the office one day and be terminated. We are not going to have a layoff and people won't know that it's there's a potential of something happening. You will not be taken by surprise ever. And employees of our company never, ever were. We talked about it sometimes to obnoxious. Well, I think it's better than the surprise approach. Yeah, but that oftentimes is in larger companies who are concerned with numbers that's all of a sudden a decision comes down from the top and that's what happens there were 
only on a very rare occasion when we were concerned that an employee might do something stupid did we ever walk somebody out. We always tried to provide an opportunity for them to say goodbye to their friends. In some cases, we would have a little goodbye party. We always made it a practice of having a a little care package of mementos to remember your time here, whether it was a coffee mug or a beach towel or a whatever, just something to have the name of the company that they will look back and I can't tell you the number of folks, some of whom who left on their own, some of whom I asked to leave, still stay in touch with us. Impressive. That's impressive. So, Howard, the we could talk forever. <laughs> like I said at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. There are any, no, you know, and, and I will probably kick myself after this chat to say, well, I should have told you about this or told you about that. but. At the end of the day, you can only include so much before people say that's enough already. Right. Well, I look forward to next time. But I do have a question for you. Is there anything else you would have done differently? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. And it's one that I certainly anticipated. What, Howard, would you have done differently looking back on your career at Hugh Freedy? And while I I can honestly say that I don't know that I would have done anything differently at Hugh Freedy, I would have done some things differently in my private life. And I think if I were to share, you know, words of advice, and maybe there are smarter entrepreneurs than me than I was at the time, I worked way too many hours and way too many days. And I think that, and my kids would probably echo some of this sentiment, that I neglected them in ways that I never neglected my business. And if I were to do it all over again, I think it's really important to have balance in one's career life and one's private life. And I would encourage all business folks. It, it's it's very easy to rationalize why you spend those extra days or extra hours or extra travel or whatever it is. But in the end, there's got to be some harmony and there's got to be some balance. And there were too many school things that I missed of my kids growing up. You know, I've done my the best that I can to try and make it up, which you can't really do, but at least to get more involved with my grandkids, but I see the generation today of entrepreneurs trying to create a little bit more balance and equalization in their professional lives. And so when I look back, I say that I could have done that a lot better. You think your own professional success and the companies could have been accomplished just the same? Yeah, maybe even better. How's that? Well, that's interesting. Simply as a result of, well, well, I won't assume. Why do you say that? I think uh, too many entrepreneurs think that if it weren't for them, the company would fail. And, and if they have a good company, the company won't. As a matter of fact, I think that if you are sometimes too close to a situation and too close to the work that you're doing, sometimes you don't see the forest through the trees. And sometimes it's good to take some breaks and enjoy the 
things that you think that you're working so hard for, and that's your family. And and hopefully if you're making and putting a few bucks in your pocket to be able to enjoy that money and put it to work with your family and do the things, uh, whether it's travel or going to a ball game or being supportive of their sports activities after school or whatever it is, I think that a lot of that is equally as important. That makes sense. Well, Howard, I appreciate you teaching us quite a few things here. Keeping it balanced, going to your kids' baseball games, (laughs) creating a culture club, and probably not to be forgotten, get yourself a Hugh Freedy beach towel whenever you have the chance. Howard, thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you very much for giving me this chance to share. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy, the middle market business. You can find us online at www dot agkcompany.com that's agkcompany.com have a good one folks and i'll talk to you next week